The scripture reading today is from the book of 2 Samuel, chapters 11 and 12. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab with his officers and all Israel with him. They ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David rose from his couch and was walking about on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. David sent someone to inquire about the woman. It was reported, this is Bathsheba, daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. So David sent messengers to get her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she was purifying herself after her period. Then she returned to her house. The woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab and the people fared and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the entrance of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to the house. When they told David, Uriah did not go down to the house. David said to Uriah, you've just come from a journey. Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah remain in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do such a thing. And David said to Uriah, Remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day. On the next day, David invited him to eat and drink in his presence and made him drunk. And in the evening, he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting, and then draw back from him so that he may be struck down and die. As Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant warriors. The men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite was killed as well. When the wife of Uriah heard that her husband was dead, she made lamentation for him. When the mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. The Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb which he had bought. He brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his meager fare and drink from his cup and lie in his bosom, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was loath to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the wayfarer who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared that for the guest who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. He said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. He shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, you are the man. 
Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I rescued you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your bosom, and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have added as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, and have taken his wife to be your wife, and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, for you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. The word of the Lord. Take a moment now for silent reflection. God, I pray that you would meet us here in this, in this space together, in our space um, on the live stream, in our homes and elsewhere. Also meet us in this story, this really difficult story, um, challenging in so many ways, and maybe familiar to us, uh, maybe familiar to us in ways that are misguided. Maybe help us see this morning um, something new. And let us hear a little bit more from Bathsheba in this story, we pray. Amen. Well, good morning, guys. It's good to be with you. Um, preached several times over the last year and a half online, preached a couple times outside. This is the first time I've gotten to preach back in this space since March 8th, um, 2020, which was our last service when we were all here together. Um, so this is, this is great, and for all of you at home, I'm glad that you can be live streaming, we can be together virtually through this amazing technology that we have. But we're going to continue on in our series we've been on through the fall that we're calling the 10%. And we're calling it the 10% because we're highlighting the stories of the women of the Old Testament, which are often undervalued, and frankly, there's not enough of them because of the culture that it was written in. But they're also the stories of the women who were pivotal pivotal at key moments in history, in the history of God's people, history of the people of Israel coming into fruition, key moments for, um, for us to look back on and to learn from if we're willing to take the time and really listen. And so this morning, we're going to try, try to take a look at this story of Bathsheba, but it's a tough story. It's, a tough, it's not a tough story um, in the sense that there's, it's a tough story to preach, not because there's not plenty of amazing material in these couple chapters. I mean, these couple chapters are probably two of the most fascinating chapters in all ancient literature. The storytelling is amazing. But there's a problem. Like, there's a huge overriding problem in the story. And that's that Bathsheba's story simply is not told. Her story is not told in these two chapters at all. She's barely named She's barely named. She has no voice or agency throughout this account. And quite simply, her story doesn't matter. Her story doesn't matter to the narrator. She's not the point of the story. Because traditionally, the point of this story is that this is about David. This is about David, the idealized king of Israel. This is about David's great sin, his great fall. But it's a sin, as this story is told, against Uriah the husband of Bathsheba, one of David's most valiant soldiers. Bathsheba is merely incidental 
to this story that's being written. So that's a challenge. But over the last week, I found myself really deeply wanting to know her story. Wanting to know her story, not feeling qualified at all to tell it or to try to even surmise it. But I want to get to know her story and to maybe, if it's possible, just reconstruct who she actually was in this story. And to do it in a way that's hopefully faithful to the story that's actually told, parallel to that actual story that's here. But to maybe just put some extra effort into letting Bathsheba's life speak, to let her life speak in this story as well. So here we have King David, the famous idealized king of all Israel for their whole time. He was the one. He's their archetypal king. But here he has completely lost himself completely lost himself. The struggle to establish his kingship is over. He's achieved his success, uh, but now he's sitting at home, kind of like twiddling his thumbs. His soldiers have all been sent off to war. He never leaves his house. He never leaves his house in this story, not once. He barely even leaves his couch in this story. He's, he's lost himself. He's disconnected. He's cowardly. He's having everybody else do his bidding, sending for this, sending for that, sending for this. And I imagine, you know, just in my mind, he's probably there drinking too much. He's probably incredibly isolated, settling into a deep complacency and narcissism that often accompanies power when people attain it like that. But one evening, he takes a walk out on his roof. Now, this scene might be very familiar to us because it's been depicted in art and culture and music in all kinds of ways, but I want to pause for a minute because there are significant problems with the way we might be imagining the story for how it's been depicted to us over the years. I mean, I've seen so many pieces of old artwork that, you know, kind of ridiculously, honestly, have Bathsheba kind of out in the open, fully naked, bathing as some kind of like exhibition for David and maybe that whole block of Jerusalem with like moonlight and setting sun bouncing off the water. Or maybe you can think of uh, Leonard Cohen's famous lines in Hallelujah, where he says, your faith is strong, but you need a proof. You saw her bathing on the roof. Her beauty in the moonlight overthrew you. I'm going to not sing anymore. Um, (laughs) I love Leonard Cohen. We could talk for hours about Leonard Cohen. But that picture of Bathsheba, along with the paintings, they're ridiculous. They're not true at all. Bathsheba's not on a roof. She's not on a roof. David's on a roof. Moreover, David's house is elevated because it had to be secure as like a fortress. It's elevated far above everybody else's houses. He can see down into everybody else's properties. Bathsheba might have very well been inside her own home. And in fact, the historian Josephus from the first century says that was the understanding in the first century. She's inside her own home. Now, there's no reason to think that she's indecently exposed in any way whatsoever because, honestly, we can't think about it, or it's hard for us to think about it this time in our lives, Um, but people were really good at bathing in a semi-public situation back in the day. People, most people didn't have, like, standalone washrooms, so, you, and you can still go to parts of the world and see kind of versions of this, but there's ways to bathe where your clothes are still kind of on you or partially on you or you're partially shielded, so that's the world she's living in. Bathsheba is completely innocent in this scene, by everything we can read in the scripture. Completely innocent. David is the lost and pervy king 
looking down onto other people's properties from his roof. And, it's a, and, he's, and he's preparing to majorly abuse his power. And it's a major, major abuse of power. Now, this story is traditionally characterized, very wrongly characterized as David's adultery, but that doesn't even begin to touch what happened. This isn't really a story about adultery. It's a story about power and taking and assault and murder and widow-making. And Bathsheba's at the center of that. And it really couldn't get much worse. Just a few things we know about Bathsheba. Now, she would have been at least 20 years younger than David, maybe more. Her grandfather was one of David's closest advisors back in the day. Her father is one of David's 30 valiant men, and there's a whole chapter to these men um, at the end of the book. Her husband, Uriah, is also on that list of the 30 valiant men. But none of that matters to David. He sends officials to take her, and the story says she complies. I mean, she goes um, voluntarily in a sense, but don't mistake that at all for consent, not even for a second, because consent or refusal to consent are not even on the table in this situation. The king has absolute power, and as Will de Gaffney says, Bathsheba's going with David's soldiers on her own two feet should in no way be read as consent, but rather as holding on to a shred of dignity a shred of dignity by not being dragged or carried out. And it's a shame that we even have to point this out. It's a shame, but a surprising number of theologians over the years, and not just like in ancient history, but like recently, make these suggestions that Bathsheba might somehow kind of be in on this thing, like either she's a seductress of some type, or maybe she's vying for some way into the royal household. I mean, this, this has been done frequently, usually by male theologians, but it's been done frequently. But there's nothing, I mean, there is zero in the story to support any of that. And that kind of speculation, that kind of illusions, those kinds of illusions, I think, say so much more about the hearts of those theologians and honestly the culture that they're swimming in, that they start to see those kinds of possibilities because they're not there. They're not in the biblical story. So David does this horrible thing, and he sends Bathsheba home. From his perspective, it's over, he's done, he can just live his life like he wants to, like he plans to, but Bathsheba's pregnant. It probably takes her a few weeks, a couple months to know this for sure. But I can't imagine what that moment and what that time is like for her in her life. She's living alone, her husband's off at war, she's living with the trauma of sexual assault, she finds out she's pregnant with the king's baby, through no choice of her own, and what's she supposed to do? Like, really, what are her options? She can't turn to her husband. He's not there, and we'll see this a little bit as we go through the story, but even if she could find a way to get word to him, there's no assurance whatsoever he would take her side. He's first and foremost a loyal soldier of the king. He might not believe her, He'd be at real risk, there'd be a real risk that he would just leave her. If she can get word to David, which is a big if, she manages to do it, but just picture her in that moment. That's not an easy thing, to get word to the king. She can't just walk in there and tell him. But there's no telling what he'll do either. And I think in that moment, because she was in this stage, I mean, you got to think about it, for weeks or months, at her own house, by herself, 
trying to figure out what to do. She comes to this disturbing realization that all the safety, all the predictability of her life that she had known, any of it that she had known, was now forever gone. She was alone and pregnant, surrounded by danger on all sides, and that's going to be the pattern of her life for many, many years. So she calculates that her best choice, her best decision, safest move is to try to contact the king. And this is where she speaks. This is the only part in the whole story where her voice comes out, just two words. She sends the message, I'm pregnant. It's the only time we hear her speak. But for David, as we read in the story, we're not going to go through it all. Um, It's a long story. He thinks this can be easily solved. Just get Uriah to think the baby's his, problem solved, no, you know, no big deal. So he calls Uriah back from the battlefront. And after schmoozing with him a bit and making him feel important, he tells Uriah this kind of odd phrase, why don't you go home and wash your feet? Go wash your feet. Now, I hate to be the one to have to tell you this, but that's a euphemism. <laughs> um, it's a weird one. But I learned in early in seminary that in Hebrew, um, feet, especially guys' feet, will often be substituted for a pair of other body parts. And the day that we learned this in seminary, we all chuckled like junior high kids because thought it was really funny, but it happens throughout the Bible. So this is a weird, hard for us, our, our kind of our mentality today, way of David saying, suggesting Uriah, just go home, you know, go wash your feet. Uriah, go be with your wife. Um, Uriah goes, but he, he, he leaves David, but he doesn't go. He's too loyal. He's too good of a soldier. He's not going to go home to the comfort of his house when his friends are off at war. And in this story, one thing that is happening in this story is that Uriah is everything David's not. Uriah is truly honorable. And that's often highlighted. It's true. But we also have to realize that from Bathsheba's perspective, it gives you a sense of her place in the whole structure. In a way that we... uh, the way we think of marriage or partnership today just didn't exist. Uriah is loyal to the king. Uriah is first and foremost a soldier of the king. When he comes back into town at the king's command, he doesn't even stop by to say hi to his wife. So you can tell from that Bathsheba knows her place in this system, also knows that he is not somebody she can rely on the way we would like to think of being able to rely on a spouse or a partner today. He's a good man, but they, their marriage is far, far subservient to other demands and other um, roles that they're playing in the society. So it also explains why she didn't just go running to him when this thing happened. So David moves to a plan B. He gets Uriah drunk. Uriah still won't go home. So then he really kind of does the ultimate evil thing in this. He sends Uriah back to the battlefront to see the commander, Joab, carrying his own death warrant. Carrying his own death warrant, these instructions of Joab to put Uriah at the front line and then to pull back from him so he'll be exposed and he'll surely die. And David knows Uriah is so honorable, he he won't read that note. He won't look at it. He trusts him to carry his own death warrant. So the problem is solved in a sense, in a very evil sense. There's a ritual seven-day mourning period, but as soon as that's over, David just brings Bathsheba back over to his house, makes her his wife, and she has a baby boy. But then we heard in verse 27, the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. 
And in this next scene, which is the kind of closing scene of the passage, it's one of the great prophetic confrontations of all time. And I want us to like embrace it for what it is and not skip over it, that the prophet Nathan goes to David with this parable about a rich man who steals the beloved lamb of a very poor man just to entertain his guests. And David's incensed and declares that this man must die, and it's David's subconscious kind of creeping up in self-condemnation. Nathan seizes on that and says, no, you're the man, David. And it's a powerful moment in Scripture and really all of ancient literature of a king being held accountable by God. And it turns into a kind of beautiful, I don't want to say kind of, a very beautiful story of repentance that is unlike anything I've ever heard in ancient literature where a king truly repents. David goes on to write Psalm 51. It might be familiar to you. It's like the, uh, have mercy on me, O Lord, according to your loving kindness. You know, create in me a clean heart, O God. Those lines that are true, deep, heartfelt repentance. It's a beautiful story. It's amazing, really. But, but, I can't help but wonder what Bathsheba would have to say if she had been in on and heard Nathan's confrontation of David. If she had heard the parable about the lamb and the poor man. And I imagine her, I can only imagine this, but I imagine her saying something like, thanks Nathan, thanks for, for trying, you, you actually were able to get through to, to David on some level, and that's no small feat. But can I just point out that in your parable, I'm just a farm animal. I'm a farm animal, and Uriah's the only person who's been injured. But I lost my old life. I was assaulted. I lost my husband. My life will never go back to the way it was. And what comes further in the story, I am about to lose my baby to make a point to David. And it would just be nice if someone, the prophet, somebody in this system, the narrator of the story, if someone could just see me and could acknowledge my wounds in this moment. And I want to pause there because the way I see it, this is the crux of the whole story today. And maybe it hits home for you because maybe you've experienced a time in your life where your suffering just wasn't seen just wasn't acknowledged, um, like your suffering was inconvenient for somebody else, or your suffering got in the way of a bigger story somebody was trying to tell. And I know in a room this size, I know from amongst all those listening on the live stream, there's got to be dozens, dozens of stories of severe suffering that has gone unacknowledged and unseen. And in one sense, I think every single one of us has some of those stories if we're willing to look deep enough. But the farther you live from power or the farther you live from majority culture, the more likely you've lived a, do a life dominated by not being seen. 
And you've had to develop immense inner resources to carry trauma alone, quietly, in silence. So I believe that Bathsheba stands for those who suffer alone. She stands for those who suffer in silence. She stands for you if you find yourself in that situation. And I alluded to it before, but just to make this story even sadder, um, she loses that baby in some kind of weird way of punishing David. And it makes sense in one way of reading sort of really old ancient ideas of divine retribution, but again, her loss isn't told, isn't acknowledged. So, Bathsheba joins David's house. She joins the royal house, but in heartbreak, and becomes part of David's harem, really, one of David's many wives. She has a second son named Solomon, who the prophet Nathan blesses and indicates that Solomon is particularly favored by God. She has three more children with David, and you might be tempted to think that her life is okay now, like things are looking up, but I wouldn't make that assumption at all. Personally, I don't think Bathsheba ever felt safe again for her entire life. I don't think she ever felt safe again. She's there in the royal house to play a role in a very violent family with full of political and internal rivalries. She's living out of a broken past. She's facing a very uncertain future, trying to raise Solomon and her three other children. And she spends the next 20 years just trying to stay one step ahead of political danger that surrounds her. That's closer to what it would be like to live in David's house as one of his wives. Thinking about her life, imagining her life, reminded me of a parable I once heard where there's a woman running from tigers. She's running from tigers, and the tigers are getting closer. And she comes up to the edge of a cliff, and she sees a vine. So she starts climbing down the vine. And as she starts climbing down the vine, she looks down, but there's also tigers below her. Tigers above, tigers below, and then she notices there's a small mouse eating away at the vine that she's holding on to. In that moment, she also sees a small patch of strawberries growing out of a little bit of soil that's tucked into the cliff wall. Tigers above, tigers below, the mouse eating her lifeline. And looking at all that, she takes one of the strawberries and enjoys it thoroughly. Now you can sit with that for a long time and play that one out in your head. And there's a lesson for everybody. But I believe that those who live without power, those who live under constant threat in their lives. There's something intuitive they would know about that, that we only have this one guaranteed moment in life. So you might as well love and care for and take care of that which is right in front of you. And for Bathsheba, I believe those were her children in that dynamic and scary and dangerous political situation that she'd be in. Her focus would have been on Solomon and her other children. She knew what it was to suffer. She knew knew what it was to lose all her power. But by all accounts, she grows in wisdom and political savvy and raises her kids well in that really challenging environment because the next time we see her, the next time we see Bathsheba, just a few pages later, but it's in the next book, the book of Kings, she's no longer Uriah's wife. 
She's no longer just a pawn in somebody else's story. She's Bathsheba, the kingmaker. And we didn't have time. We could, that story was so long today, we couldn't also tack this part on. I wish we could. But it happens just a few pages farther in the Bible where the beginning of 1 Kings is 20 years, maybe 30 years have gone by. The royal household is chaotic and violent, and David's, king, or David's sons are vying for power. One of them, named Adonijah, had set himself up as the king, and he's about to consolidate his power, which means he's going to kill everybody that's not aligned with him. And Nathan, the prophet, Bathsheba, and Solomon, they all end up on the wrong side of that equation. So the prophet Nathan, the same one who confronts David, goes to the Bathsheba and she says, look, pleads for her help. That's what he does. He pleads for her help. And she goes in to David and not just asks, almost demands, calls on David to make Solomon king. And he does. He makes Solomon king. This is Bathsheba, empowered. Bathsheba, the only one who can, has the stature, or even the prophet is asking her to do the work, has a stature to appeal to David, to get David to do what needs to be done. Solomon is made king, and then to even take it up to a whole other level. When Solomon's made king, he builds another throne for Bathsheba. She sits in a throne next to him as the first queen mother of all of Israel. And then there's a line of queen mothers that come later, meaning she's like the most influential person besides the king in that kingdom, at the height of the kingdom, at the height of his prosperity. So it's quite a turnaround. And you can maybe say it's a good ending to the story. In some ways it really is, it's really cool, but I gotta say, I don't think any of the new power or any of the new stature that Bathsheba achieved in any way erased or made up for the pain for what happened to her in her early years. It certainly isn't justice for her. There's no justice in this story for Bathsheba. So no justice, but I do imagine it increased her sense of awe her sense of awe. And that's how I see her as queen mother in Israel. No sense of justice, probably way past, way beyond even looking for justice, but probably having a profound sense of awe that God had seen her in all those years, even when nobody else did. God had seen her, and even when her story was barely even written, and, all, and even though her heart had been broken over and over again in so many ways, that all of that had led to her sitting on this throne, helping to lead Israel in its most prosperous time. And the long arc, this very long arc of Bathsheba's story, reminds me of a promise that God makes in Joel chapter 2. Where God says, I will restore to you the years the locusts have taken. I will restore to you the years the locusts have taken. And it's a promise to all of Israel, it's a promise to us, too, that suffering and exile is not the whole story, it's not forever, and that God has a way of redeeming what's been broken, even mysteriously restoring lost time. You think about that for a minute, because it says, I will restore the years the locusts have taken. And that's a mystery in a sense, because intuitively we know you can't make up for lost time in a one-for-one -one kind of way, or lost opportunities, or lost loved ones. 
even when the new blessings come, we still hold the old sufferings in us. Bathsheba held her old sufferings even as she's sitting on the throne as queen mother. But I think what God's offering to us is that we can discover new meaning, new meaning in our suffering, that we can start to see the storyline of our life differently. We can start to see that God was with us even in the suffering, even when we had to suffer unseen and in silence, that the suffering actually had a movement, had a direction, had a purpose that's directly connected to the blessings that can come along later. And so for Bathsheba and us, God restoring the lost years might mean both being able to name real injustice in our lives, to be honest about it, but also to not let that injustice harden us. When you're overwhelmed or suffering, being able to still see that strawberry growing out of the cliff wall or the people sitting around you like right now or even at your, at your houses at home. And realizing that when our hearts are broken, when our hearts are broken and they will be broken, it's inevitable, that there's always opportunity to take that brokenness and turn toward the world in compassion. And so this is a heartbreaking story in a lot of ways that has a good ending in some ways. But I think for Bathsheba, it's largely her heartbreak, ideally, hopefully, turning towards the world in compassion on that throne, helping to lead the nation. You know, in her poem called uh, Lead, um, it's by Mary Oliver, and lead in terms of the meaning, the, the metal, lead. She begins with these really stark words where she says, Here, here's a story to break your heart. Here is a story to break your heart. Are you willing? And then she tells a story, it's very sad, of birds, loons actually, that would come to her harbor every winter. And then one year they mysteriously, one by one, just begin to die. It's a mystery in the poem, but the idea is also that there's lead in the water, which has happened many times. They die, and it's sad, and then she ends with these words. I think they're going to go on the screen. I tell you this to break your heart. I tell you this to break your heart, by which I mean only that it break open and never close again to the rest of the world. I tell you this to break your heart, by which I mean only that it break open and never close again to the rest of the world. Let's pray. God, thank you for Bathsheba's story. It's a story that in many ways uh, made me sad this week. It broke my heart um, trying to imagine her life and her experience. And I wish we knew more about her. But let her story, what is there, encourage us when our suffering goes unseen. Let her story cause us to keep a watchful eye also for those whose stories are going unseen or being erased or minimized. Let us take the deep lessons from this story with us into the week ahead. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.